G'day listeners, I'm Rob. And I'm David. And welcome to the Doctor Who Show, episode number nine. Number nine? Number nine? The podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. How are you, David? What have you been up to this past month? I'm I'm very well, and in fact, I have to say, Rob, I'm a very smug Doctor Who fan this month. Yes, tell me more. Because since we last spoke, I've actually put the final book on the shelf to complete my entire target slash virgin range from An Unearthly Child right through The Dying Days, complete, complete. Wow. What was the last book that did it? Uh, the last book that did it was So Vile a Sin, The New Adventure. Okay. I, I've not read that one, but um, I see it come up for sale from time to time because I've actually been looking to dip my my toes into buying. I don't think I'll ever get the whole set of new adventures, but I, I am starting to collect little pockets of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's that's a good thing to do. I've been rereading a bit of them over um, the course of the year, and I, I really enjoy them. And I'm, I'm very, very fond of the Virgin books, and I think all Doctor Who fans of a certain vintage era fans of the Target books. Mm. So yeah, it's good to go back and um, read a few of those. It certainly is. I've I've got some holes in my Target collection still, but it's mostly there, including the really hard ones, which I got at the time they came out. So they were never sort of hard to me <laughs> to get, but they're very hard for other people to get these days. So Mind Warp, for example. Yeah, Mind Warp, and I think Wheel in Space is one as well. Uh, I seem to recall. That's the one that went up in a warehouse fire or something. There's some story like that, and that's why there are very few copies out there or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, I think I think you think you're right on that one. No, Wheel in Space is one that I've I've always had, but um, Mind Warp was one that I've had to acquire in the last year. And some of the some of the unusual ones like Canine and Company, the Companion Chronicles, um, they were ones I've had to go out and find and various secondhand, um. Venues, you know, some of them are ex-library. Unlike a certain Doctor Who podcaster, I didn't steal it from a library. I would buy them all legitimately. <laughs> yes, if people know who that is, write in and, and, and tell us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if you're listening to both podcasts. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting, you know, thinking about you collecting your set here and I'm starting to collect these pockets of the NAs. For example, I'm on a mission now just to get all the Paul Cornell NAs. Um and that's like that's sort of one little oh, okay. pocket, yeah, of, interesting. you know, because I, I particularly like his his writing and and stuff. And I originally had goth opera because I collected all the um, the Davis and um, missing adventures. And of course, he'd written goth opera for that. But, uh, you know, so I've picked up human nature and I'm I'm currently shuddering at how much. Um, oh, gosh, what's it called? The 50th book. Happy Endings. About fifty dollars, I think, is about the cheapest I can see a good copy of that. Yeah, it's interesting. If if you're willing to have a little bit of patience and wait for somebody who doesn't really know what they've got to put it up on eBay, you can usually get them a bit cheaper. But I, I always take advantage of either myself or someone in my family visiting the UK and therefore saving about £10 on postage for every book. So Yeah, that is the killer for us down here that I, I guess some people overseas particularly the UK, don't even think about. We, we sometimes pay a premium for these things and then a big whack of postage on top. Well, that's right. I mean, my, my parents were very kind and brought out a whole lot that I got sent to my sister's place um, last month. And in some of those cases, I was literally getting these books for three or four pounds, but I would have had to pay 10 to 15 pounds postage on top of that to bring it to Australia, which makes it a, not worthwhile. But if you've got a, a courier, then uh, it's much better. Yeah, look, I... 
I can't work out the UK postage sometimes. I use bookfinder.com a lot, uh, which puts me in contact with all sorts of little bookshops all over the UK. And sometimes they're only charging two or three pounds postage in theory. Uh, yet at other times, there is actually a copy at the moment of Happy Endings on eBay for eight Australian dollars, but they want about 25 Australian dollars for postage, and it's not actually yes. a very good copy, so it's like, oh, this postage thing is a real pain in the butt. Yeah, well, I'm just grateful that I've decided to collect something so finite. People who collect Doctor Who magazine, I have a real, real sympathy for, because that must be a horrible task to try and complete. Yes, and actually... <laughs> I bought a job lot of Doctor Who magazines just recently. Um, I found a cache of my old magazines. I thought, now, what am I missing? Well, I'm missing hundreds of issues, that's for sure. And uh, I started looking around on, on Fleabay and other places. And, gosh, they're usually about 10 to $15, you know, some of these magazines. But I found someone selling 22 magazines for a starting price of $25. And, and they were local, so the postage was pretty good, too. It was about $14. And I threw a bid down, and I won. So I, I recently picked up 22 magazines for $25 plus postage, uh, which, you know... What, what era were they? They're from about 170 through to the early 190s. Oh, great. That's a, that's, that's a great run, that lot. Yeah, which is, which is really good for me, because I was a complete ferret between about... Well, the first one I ever bought with my own money was 119, and I collected them religiously up into the 150s. So about 30 issues in a row there, and then it sort of went a bit funny. So this, this comes not long after that era, so it's starting to tie things together and stretch out my collection and for not much money. Because as I say, you see a lot of the other standalone issues, and they're you know, at least $10 each, which is a lot of money. It is for what is basically a, a magazine. Yeah, and they're very pamphlety in that era as well. They're so thin. There's not much to them. Well, they, there wasn't quite as much going on back then. So- <laughs> That's true. That, that's that's my smug month. What have you been up to lately, Rob? I've I've been doing lots of interesting things, but probably for the for the sake of this podcast, I'll keep it to. I watched Tom Baker, Sir Tom of Baker, in the Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, this is a, oh my, yeah. This is a four part uh, series from Britain, early eighties, and of interest to Who fans, uh, of course, if you, if you do know about it, Barry Letts produced it. Uncle Terence was the scriptwriter, and Carolyn John turns up in it as well. So it's like a, it's like a mini Who reunion of sorts. Now I haven't seen this, Rob. I've certainly heard of it, but the legend is that Tom Baker wanted to play it in a particular way, and now looking back on his time, regrets that nobody told him it wasn't working at the time. Did you get any sense of that watching this? If he means flat and uninspiring, then yes, I totally get what he means. <laughs> I think he might have been going for, for brooding and self-contained, but didn't realise it was just coming across as flat and uninteresting. Yes. So, yes, it's quite a notorious little production. I, I really should check it out sometime. It's it's really good, and in the... <laughs> here we go. It's really good in the sense that it's a, it's an interesting TV artefact. You know, it's, it's post-Doctor Who, Tom, but not too post-Doctor Who. It's within a year or two of him leaving. Mm. Uh, so to me, it sort of had that final Tom Baker season feel to it, that sort of downbeat sort of Tom, which could be because he's going for the brooding, um, style, as you say. So it's, it's, it's a little, was a little flat to me, of course. Uh, there's not a lot of location filming. There's a lot of nice interiors, you know, sort of reminds me of Ghostlight, BBC doing those great interiors of old buildings very well. Oh, yes. 
the four parts make it interesting, makes it very easy to, to digest as a story. Uh, the opening credits are very interesting. They're sort of like uh, animated. Oh, uh, sort of okay. s- a spooky sort of animation, um, which is really quite strange and weird and kind of cool. And from, from time to time, I'd flick over to the commentary track as well. And I'm going to have to go back and listen to the whole thing with the commentary on because it's, it's Tom being Tom. He's got someone prompting him. Um, you know, like, oh, who's this Tom? How did you like working with them? And, you know, Tom telling his outrageous stories. I may be correct in saying Australia might be the only place this has been released. I'm not sure on that. I might have to go and check. It It seemed that way when I was looking it up. Madman, um, the people who often do anime, have put it out. Yes, I, I can actually remember Madman when he was one guy in a small shop in inner North Melbourne who used to import Doctor Who DVDs in the 90s. Wow. Well, he's certainly grown. <laughs> he's now grown to a full-on multi-million-dollar film distribu- distributor. But yeah, I can remember him back when he first started as a video importer. Far out. Yeah, I, I can remember them doing videotapes of anime back in the nineties. Well, well, actually, if you if you want a really firm memory of um, Madman, I can remember standing in a queue of about fifty people outside his shop at six p.m. in a winter's evening, getting the first crate of the Doctor Who telemovie VHSs to arrive in Australia. Oh, that's dedication. <laughs> it, it was, and I think I knew half the people in that queue. Now, were we getting that before it was on television here? I'm trying to... Yes, yes. So it wasn't on television here for about two months after it was screened in the UK. So getting a, a, a UK VHS release was the only way you could you could see it um, straight after the UK. So, yeah, every, every sort of big Doctor Who fan in the city was lined up at this importer's warehouse, and he was literally taking them out of a, a wooden shipping crate and, and, you know, taking the cash and handing them over to this queue of people um, lined up in the dark on a winter's evening. And on that one event, he built his empire. <laughs> and now he's a multi-million dollar film distributor, <laughs> all because of the telly movie. Yeah, I, I mean, for, for people overseas, Madman does, oh gosh, a lot of really interesting stuff. Not just anime, I mean, that is a big part of the business. But they do a lot of world movies and a lot of independent films and a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, yes. You know, when you go looking for it and you, f- you find it at a, at a um, DVD retailer and you realise, oh, it's released through Madman locally. Okay, cool. And yes, they've released this. They've gone out and, and released this locally. So it's, uh, it's good we don't have to import this particular one if it is available overseas, which I'm not sure it is. Uh, I don't know. Well, it's certainly available here, though, so I will, I will check it out. Um, I think my favourite hand of the Baskervilles is still the Ian Richardson version. Yes. But um, I'll be interested to see Tom Baker's version, just, just out of curiosity, if nothing else. Yes, I believe there's also a, an interesting Peter Cushing one from the late 60s, which I've never seen, but that could be quite interesting to check out too. Hmm. All right, anything else this month before we get into our news? Um, I just want to say briefly, because this is a Doctor Who podcast and we love the show, last week I watched the three existing episodes of the Dalek Master Plan, and I, I just wanted to say to the audience how much I loved it. They're three totally different episodes totally different episodes but all really really good particularly the end of part two i was i was desperate to watch part three yeah and you have to skip across of course to part five i'm gonna to have to pull the um the audios out sometime again soon i think i need a I need a road trip to go and listen to dalek's master plan on but yeah just 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 an example of pulling out a, a doctor who story and just really loving it and sometimes as fans we perhaps forget to just sit back and enjoy some good stories mm, i think so and you know obviously with power of the Daleks being reconstructed, people have been saying, well, what will they do next? Assuming there will be a next. 
And some people have been saying um, Dalek's master plan. I think evil would probably be more along the lines of what they would do, being shorter, of course. I mean, it would be a hell of an undertaking to do master plan. Yeah, it, it would. I mean, not just in the length, but the, the, the massive variation in, in story locations would be quite a complex undertaking, as much as I'd love to see it. Evil is a logical step, and, you know, I've actually always said evil would be above power for me in stories I'd like to see returned, just because I want to see that, that epic stuff at the end with the Emperor Dalek mm. on Scarrow and the Dalek Civil War. I, I know, you know, half of it was done with toy Daleks, and it's not going to be visually amazing, but I just want to see it. Yeah. I want to see the Emperor. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. All right, we've got news coming up, but I think there might be one last thing that you mentioned to me during the week about Star Trek, and uh, I think we can get away with mentioning some Star Trek. Well, I, I, I mentioned in a Doctor Who context, because it's Star Trek's 50th anniversary, and I was thinking about this as I was driving along listening to a podcast about missing episodes, and I thought, what would the world be like, given how fanatical Star Trek fans are? They put even Doctor Who fans to shame. Mm. Imagine if a third of original Trek was missing. What would Star Trek fans be like? Now, I get that because of the way it was distributed in, in, to all the US stations, it would never actually happen, but could you imagine what Star Trek fans would be like searching for missing episodes? Oh, look, they'd be out there like the Who people are, but I, I guess with guns. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and in costume. And in costume. Yeah, gosh. It's, it's, it's an interesting sort of hypothetical, because as you say, it would never happen because, you know, the... I guess being commercial and, you know, in syndication, they just had so many episodes out there, it would just never happen. But, uh, you know, I think they'd be kind of a perverse, uh, putting aside how they would go and search for them, I think there'd be a kind of a perverse pride that some of it is missing. Because in, in Who Phantom, I don't know if you agree with this, but there's almost a, a, a mystique about them. And, and some of these stories, if they existed, we probably wouldn't regard them very well at all. But because they're missing, it's like, oh, this is, you know very interesting and mythological almost, and, you know, very uh, interesting. So, so are you imagining a world where people go, I've heard Spock's brain's really, really interesting. I wish we could see it. <laughs> exactly. I think that could be the, the case. I think, well, whenever you can't see something, you, you always imagine it's probably better than it is. Yeah, I, I, I feel that way about Perth. <laughs> yeah, I've never been to Perth myself either. It's a long way away. It, it's 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 a continent away. Yeah, it's quicker to go to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> so, news. Yes, news. Now, I think you've probably got our lead this month because you've uh, you've been delving into some class in the last few hours, I guess. Well, yes. So, in, in, in part of getting ready for this podcast, I, I realised that there wasn't as much class news around as I thought there should be. So, I started doing a bit of research and I delved into the social media feeds of some of the lead actors on the show and that led me to find out that they were doing a live um, stream Q&A and on Friday afternoon in the UK which was 1.30am our time now I, I didn't get up and watch it at 1.30am but I have watched the recording this morning and they've, they've revealed quite a bit of news so the, the first thing is the world premiere of class they've announced will be on the 20th of October in Shoreditch mm -hmm. but episodes 1 and 2 will be dropping on the 22nd of October so we only have a month to go. Is this on the uh, the player or actually on television? Uh, it's on the BBC Three, which I believe is the player now. Okay, but I'm not sure when the follow up is. They haven't they haven't um, 
made that clear. Now, I've, I've looked up since. They've actually released the titles of the first two episodes. Ooh, tell me more. So, episode one is For Tonight We Might Die. Okay. And episode two, now, I'm not wearing my glasses, so it's either The Couch with the Dragon Tattoo or The Coach with the Dragon Tattoo, both of which are intriguing possibilities, but I think yes. it's probably Coach given the school context. Yes, like their gym teacher or something. Yeah, you you would think so. So... If they're going for evil PE teacher, that resonates with me. Interesting. Now, you know, in, in the past week, I've heard other podcasts say, oh, they're going to drop all the episodes at once on, on the player, sort of like a Netflixy kind of thing, and then they'll show them later on television. But this, this sort of confirms that, no, that's not the case. This will be just a couple of episodes at first, and then, what, maybe one a week, perhaps? Uh, look, that, that would be my assumption. And I would guess they're probably going to drop them on the player and then have them on free-to-air that week. Because otherwise, why wouldn't you just drop them all on the player? I think this way they're trying to make sure they get some bang for their buck out of the ratings or, or whatever. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, the other big news is they have confirmed, and it's out, out there now everywhere, that uh, Peter Capaldi is appearing as the Doctor, at least in something. Hooray! And they had some shots of him on screen and the actors talking about how amazing it was working with him. And particularly for some of these younger actors, they just you know talked quite sincerely about watching Peter Capaldi do his work and his craft and what they learned from him, which was really mm-hmm. kind of cool to listen to. So what's our sense? Capaldi comes in and says, oh, kids, there's monsters coming, but I can't hang around. i got to go. You look after them or, or something. Well, interesting you say that, because my sense was that he would appear in the final episode as sort of the big, oh, my goodness, how are we going to get out of this? Oh, cool, the Doctor's arrived. We'll team up with him. Mm. But you're right. Maybe he does just pop in enigmatically and go... You know, set, set up the set up the concept rather than close the concept. That's I hadn't looked at it that way. Yeah, or maybe he bookends the the series. Yeah, I I actually hope he doesn't because I think if class is going to stand in some way on its own, having the Doctor be the, the front and the end of it kind of says well we couldn't do it without him. Mm. Um, as much as I'd like to see Peter Capaldi, but I, I hope that he's just in there enough to maybe either kick it along or add to the climax without it. But but let them stand on their own. Yeah, it just worries me in the sense that because it is a Doctor Who spin-off and if Capaldi's not there all the time, will there be elements in each episode like, oh, what would the Doctor do? Or, you know, just really overt references to Doctor Who to remind people that it's it's tied in. I, I don't know. Yeah, again, I, I hope not, but it, it, is, it is conceivable. Mm. Uh, so the other thing they spoke about was they, they, they really confirmed, and I think we'd seen a little bit on the news in the last week as well, it, it, they're going very much for that young adult uh, feel. They said very much that uh, the list, uh, not the list Lane adventures. What are they called? The Sarah Jane adventures. <laughs> they were very much a, a, a kids, a kids thing. Doctor yes. Who itself is, is family. Torchwood was meant to be adult, and this is going for the, that that different audience again, that young adult audience. And the characters said that it's it's actually quite dark and raw because this isn't the Doctor and his companions dealing with. Uh, monsters and aliens and stuff. This is just a bunch of very, very normal high school kids. So when they're confronted with death and destruction and danger and life-threatening things, they're going to react as you would expect a 17-year-old to react, not as the Doctor's companion would react or the Doctor would react. Mm. So they're going for a lot more of that raw emotion reality-type approach to this, which, uh, again, comes back to Buffy in some senses. But, But Roswell, I think, even more is going to be where this this sort of pictures. Yeah, because in Buffy, Buffy 
was almost the Doctor-like character, you know, she'd see a vampire and be like, eh, vampire, you know, because she's got the, the yeah. superpowers to fight them. Uh, whereas here, yeah, as you say, they're, they're just kids. They're just going to react in interesting ways. It also begs the question, will any of them be bumped off over the season because they're not main characters, they're not established, any of them could go. That I think that will add to, you know, the, the tension, hopefully at least. Yeah, that, that's right. You're, I mean, you're right, because they don't have that status of a Doctor or Companion it wouldn't be as big a deal per se if they were knocked off. That said, there's only four lead students at the moment, so there's not many to bump off. But no, you're right. It, it could be interesting. And of course, the the the, the teacher wasn't um, on the Q and A, but they showed some footage of her, and I got a real Joanna Lumley vibe out of her. Joanna Lumley, particularly in was it the New Adventures that she was in, or Sapphire and Steel, those sort of things. Ah, very. That sort of era, Joanna Lumley. That I got that feeling out of the teacher. So we'll see where they pitch as well. Hmm. Maybe in terms of getting bumped off, maybe it's the uh, the supporting cast. I think back. I think it's the Buffy pilot episode. I'm sure Xander had a best friend, and you think, oh, look, they're best friends, and they're going to you know have adventures. And next thing, the best friend became a vampire, as I recall. It's it's been a while since I watched it. Episode two. Yeah. It's episode two. Ah, okay. Episode two. He was, and in fact, Joss Whedon wanted to have that character in the opening credits as a lead, so it would be an even bigger shock when he got bumped off in episode two. But uh couldn't afford to do it back in those days. All right. Uh, a couple of quick things to get through, because I know other people have spoken about them over the past week. But uh, <laughs> John Barrowman accusing Stephen Moffat of blocking Torchwood's return. And uh, Moffat going to the trouble of actually issuing a statement saying that, you know, he could no, no more block Torchwood than Barrowman could block Sherlock being made. Seems to be a bit of a storm in a teacup, but... Uh, it's really, I guess, cut Barrowman out of maybe coming back to Doctor Who while ever Moffat's around. Yeah, which um, is, is kind of a shame, but it's, it's been very, very funny. And I, I don't know where this is all coming from, from Barrowman's perspective, but I actually agree with Gareth, Gareth Roberts now. It would just be hilarious if Moffat did bring back Torchwood, but without Captain Jack. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. It would be quite interesting, actually, because Torchwood does stand on its own. You know, they don't need Captain Jack. Look, look, the, the, the Torchwood concept, I think, is a really fascinating one that, that is actually quite flexible in what it can do. And I'd, I'd love to see a different take on Torchwood and a different take on that concept. Mm. Um, yeah, without Captain Jack, as much as I enjoy Captain Jack and I like John Barrowman and his performance, I, I, I would like to see that concept done in a different way. I, I'll, I'll watch that show. Yeah, I, I, look, I've got to put my hand up here and say I, I like Barrowman and I like the Captain Jack character, and I would have loved to have seen him back for a Christmas special in the last few years, at least. Uh, I know I'm sort of on the outer with a lot of fans when I say this for some reason. There seems to be a bit of a, a backlash against him out there in fandom whenever he's mentioned, particularly many of the podcasts I listen to, but I quite enjoy him. I, you know, I, I wouldn't mind seeing him back. That said, when he said, oh, Moffat's blocking Torchworth, I thought, oh, John, <laughs> I'm not sure that's the case. I wonder, I wonder again if that's a, a, a country split thing here, because in Australia, John Barrowman's really only known for Torchwood, mm. whereas in the UK, he's been in, you know, 50 different shows, and perhaps there is a little bit of that, oh my goodness, it's John Barrowman again syndrome for English people, but for us, we, we, we don't get that, he's just in one show, and he's really good in it. Yeah, you get that sense of, I don't know, never mind the buzzcocks, you know, the Barrowman... <laughs> You know, and the shaking of the Yeah, fist. yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, we, we don't get him on, you know, every panel show and hosting this and hosting that and that real sort of barrowman fatigue that I guess they get. So maybe, maybe that's why we're a lot more amiable to him. I think so. Uh, okay, quickly, Power of the Daleks. What did we get right? What did we get wrong last time we spoke about it? 
Uh, we got right that it was going to be released. Yes, <laughs> uh, we, we speculated that it could be anything from some animated to all animated. So because we had that full spectrum, we did hit the right um, answer, and that is that it's all animated. Yes. Does it kill the Omni Rumor? I think it's a big blow for the Omni Rumor, yes. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree there, which is a real shame. Or could you imagine if Phil Morris is sitting there with, with it and thinking, oh, I was about to give it back. <laughs> I, I don't know how that would play out. Like, I just can't imagine a realistic situation in, in, a, in a corporate environment. And Phil Morris is a corporate entity when it comes to this. This is, this is his company, this is his, his livelihood. I can't imagine that sort of situation arising, but it's, it's such a funny thing to watch fandom. If it wasn't for the Omni Rumor and the BBC said, we are animating and releasing all six episodes of Power of the Daleks, we would all be cock hoop But because it kind of confirms that they haven't found missing episodes of it, we're like, well, that's good, yeah. Just, I guess. It's a shame it's not the missing episodes. Yeah. One question remains. Could it be in colour? You've gone very quiet. <laughs> I don't think so. In fact, I actually think fans would would have a backlash if it was in colour, because it wouldn't be true to the spirit and the tone of the original. Mm. I've just been seeing some weird rumours on, you know, and rumours are rumours, of course, people saying, look, because it's going to be screened on US television, they have actually made it in colour. Uh, you can watch it in black and white too, obviously. Uh, so it's best of both worlds. And wouldn't that be an interesting surprise if it came out with a colour version? Yeah, that that could be interesting. I'd need to process that one. I'm not sure if I like the idea or not. Yeah, I'm I'm still in, in two minds about it. And, of course, it's just a rumour. It could just be some zany, yeah. zany thing out there. Uh, finally, on power, Annika Wills is doing signed copies of it if people want to get them from her website. I think she's charging about £22, £23. So it's basically the cost of the DVD plus about £10 for the autograph, which I thought was pretty good. Yeah, no, that, that's not bad at all. It's not bad at all. Um. I, I must admit, I've got Annika Wills's autograph. I met her when she came to Sydney about, must be nearly 15 years ago now. But Name dropper. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, but no, that, that's that's really good value, especially for Australian viewers, because she's she said quite openly she's of an age now where she's not doing the 24-hour commute to Australia. So if you want to get her autograph from here, you need to post off for it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm certainly thinking of doing it that way. I think it, it could be well worth it. Yeah, I think so. All right, final piece of news, something uh, you'd spotted during the week, Jumanji. Yes, so of all the movies that didn't have to be remade, it's <laughs> Jumanji. Along with The Magnificent Seven and Ben-Hur and, you know, yeah, the list goes on. Well, look, look I, could, I can justify a remake of Ben-Hur, just not the one they made. Um, <laughs> I don't understand the need to remake Jumanji, but it's in, it's got The Rock, so it'll no doubt do well at the box office. But it's also got Karen Gillum, and... They've released some shots from the, the set, and Karen Gillum is apparently exploring the jungle in very, very short shorts mm-hmm. and a shirt that's sort of been ripped off at the midriff to just cover the essentials. And there's been a bit of a backlash about, oh, well, isn't this just a ridiculous way to address your female lead? You know, you should never explore in the jungle like that. It's just sexism in Hollywood <laughs> and all that sort of thing. And she's come out and said, no, no, in context, it all makes sense, but just feels so tacky the whole thing and i i really worry about karen gillam's career choices because she's done some strange stuff and i don't know if this could be the make or break one for her but 
she's certainly been cast before for her body. I mean, even in Doctor Who, she was getting referred to as legs. Um, so it's, it's, it's a hard one. I mean, when I first started seeing a few people saying, oh, look, this is sexist, I thought, well, hang on, Lara Croft dresses like this, and wasn't she a feminist icon? I, I can't recall. Uh, you know, she wore short shorts and a tiny shirt. But uh, as as things progressed, uh, I think The Rock got involved and said, "Look, it's it's fine. It all makes sense." And and then Karen said, "Look, it's all it's all in context when you see it." I'm assuming this is just a guess that could she maybe be a child at the start of the movie and then becomes an adult, and that's why her clothes don't fit. I don't know. Look, look, that that would kind of make sense given what we know about the previous Jumanji film. Now, as they they, they say that it'll all make sense when we see it. That kind of assumes that we're actually going to go and see it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, look, I don't mind The Rock. I, look, I, I generally see a movie a week, but I've got to say, a remake of Jumanji will not be high on my list of things to see, even if it has got Karen Gillum and The Rock. Yeah, and, and I guess to, to play the other side of the coin, even if there is an explanation, even if the clothes are ill-fitting because she grew up in the storyline, it's still playing on the fact that she's got a sexy body. You know, it, it's still there. Yeah, but it's Hollywood, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it is. All right, let's move on. I've got a listener email from our last episode. It seems so long ago since we did our last episode. It's uh, It's been a while. And this is from John Hole. He says, I just listened to your latest at the gym. Great to have an additional presenter on your podcast. Good move and sounds great. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that, John. Yeah, pat on the back there. I found it interesting and funny about how you talked about the Doctor being in Sydney and the cheesy name-dropping. Here he's referring to my review of uh, Big Bang Generation by Gary Russell, the novel, uh, which is partly set in Sydney, and he just name-drops every single, like, parks and shops and (laughs) everything. (laughs) (laughs) And I found it quite annoying. He says uh, he found it uh, quite funny, possibly having the opposite effect of what they were hoping. Are there any actors or locations you think could work? if they did film in Australia. Maybe Claudia Black could be a good villain or something. So I'll stop the email there and maybe throw that over to you without notice, David. Are there any actors or locations in Australia that could work in Doctor Who and wouldn't be cheesy? Well, if if you wanted a location for Doctor Who in Australia, the Red Centre would be absolutely the place to go. Out right in the middle of the continent where it's it's this unique, barren, red desert, sparsely um, populated uh, somewhere you know around Ayers Rock and the um, the Olgas, and I, I went to the, I went there about three years ago, and it, it is like an alien world there. And you walk around the Olgas, and it's like something out of the Cretaceous period. It's just so amazingly alien. So I, I would actually like them to film in Australia in the Red Centre, but not not located in Australia. Use it as the background for a, a truly alien world. That was going to be my question: whether it would be local or. or... Alien, and I guess in that sense, like when they went to Spain for Kill the Moon, and uh, it wasn't Spain, it was the moon. Yeah, or, or you do it like Planet of Fire, and you go and maybe do some filming in Alice Springs as a township, and then you go out to the, the desert and do some filming on an alien planet. I, I don't know. In terms of actors, Australian actors, Richard Roxburgh to play a baddie would be my, my pick. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so Richard Roxburgh was probably most famous for playing uh, Roger Rogerson in the uh, Blue Murder series, the the corrupt police detective up in your part of the world, Rob. <laughs> hey! 
Um, but yeah, I think he would he would play a very good baddie if they built something in Australia. He's he's my pick. What what about you? What, where 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 and who would you have? Yeah, look, I think it's hard to go past the red center because it is so alien looking. Uh, to go in the complete reverse, why not somewhere out on the coast? You know, in some sparkling blue waters. You know, something underwater that is actually set underwater and not just in a tank in a studio. You know, uh, mm. again, to reference Planet of Fire, we got a bit of a sense of that. You know, Perry was out on the boat and we got some interesting shots out on the water. Um, you know, who doesn't go out on the water all that much? It has done, but not that often and not in the uh, the really just that crystal blue barrier reef kind of, oh, that'd be gorgeous to look at on screen. It would, although they have done it, Rob, because don't forget episode one of Enemy of the World <laughs> was set on a beach in Australia. Yes, it was. <laughs> It didn't look anything like an Australian beach, but it was meant to be. Nope, that's right. Um, and in terms of actors, as I say, we've got we've got a wealth of actors here to choose from. But, you know, I, I think a, a crossover with someone the uh, UK audiences might already know well, like a Craig McLaughlin or someone like that, playing against type. I mean, he almost plays against type in the in the Dr. Blake mysteries. You know, he's he's got the beard, mm. he's, he's paunchier, um, his hair is not spiky, you know. He, that's interesting. But I mean playing against type where he might actually play a, a bad sort of character. In fact, I think there's an SBS series coming up on fictional murders set around Bondi that he's in, and I think he might be playing a baddie in that, which could be quite interesting. And just okay. having the recognition in the UK, you know, might help as well, because he, he obviously had quite a career in the UK post-Neighbours. Yeah, no, that's true. He was in The Bill as well, I think. Oh, God, I think he popped up in a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting call. I, I could go with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not choosing, like, a real thespian-type actor there. I'm, I'm going for someone with mass appeal, uh, as opposed to, say, a Richard Roxburgh-type. Yep, no, that's a good contact. That good contrast, yeah. Hmm. Uh, John Hole continues. I wonder if the Peter Jackson offer will ever come to anything. So, mm, there's an interesting comment. I thought he was going to do something this series actually, and there's not been sort of any word about it after they made that little video down in New Zealand about you know the scripts and so on, and the Dalek running around his house and Peter Capaldi running around his house. I thought that was a precursor to to something happening in this new season. Yeah, I think I think the time factor is going to be the one that will rule someone like Peter Jackson out. If, if it was literally come in for three days and f direct an episode, I'm sure he would. But given that it's usually several weeks of preparation, casting, working with designers, all that sort of thing, that's that's a lot of time for someone like Peter Jackson to mm. take out of um, his schedule to to do a TV series. Um, unlike someone like Kevin Smith, who occasionally directs episodes of stuff like The Flash. But yeah. He's not quite, not quite the same level of TV director, of movie director as uh, Peter Jackson is. <laughs> the question begs, though, why did he make that video? You know, and, and obviously before he made that video, he was on on uh, the record as saying, "Oh yeah, I'd do it for you know if they gave me a Dalek, for example." So he he's into the idea. He made that quite extensive video with Capaldi, yet it still hasn't come to anything. I, I don't know why he'd go that far if it wasn't sort of on the cards. I I think that. Peter Jackson now just does whatever takes his fancy. And whether that's doing a little Doctor Who skit, that's fine. Whether that's turning The Hobbit into a nine-hour movie, he does that too. Just, he wants to do it, he does it. Oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's finish John's email. He says, personally, I think filming in natural areas overseas looks best. Okay, so that ties in with what we were talking about. Although I love Muppets, sorry, Angels in Manhattan. We see cities all the time on TV. Thank you from John Hull. 
Thank you, John. Um, some good comments there. Yeah, that's quite interesting, and I'm glad somebody likes angels in Manhattan. That's that's reassuring. Yeah, there's, there wouldn't be too many out there. Okay, before we finish up, we do have uh, a listener email of sorts, or more of a question. I was throwing it out there on Twitter as to whether anyone had any comments or questions for us. And our friend Rob at 42 to Doomsday has asked us a question, so... Oh, hello, Rob. <laughs> David, are you up for this one? Go on. Name the encounter with a Doctor Who actor slash production member that still gives you the happiest memories and why. Do you need some thinking time? Uh, have you got one? I do, because obviously I've been thinking about it since I got the question. So I'll go first, if you like. You go first. Yep. For me, it's Katie Manning. And I know Katie would be popular with many people because she's Katie Manning. She's bright and bubbly and friendly and happy and up for anything. But for me, I was I was either 12 or 13 and she came to a Doctor Who fan club party at Sydney Uni. And before she came in, they had pictures of her on in the series up around the place. And I, I'd seen a bit of her on TV. I mean, Tom Baker had been repeated more than anyone else here. I had seen some of the Pertwee stories at this stage. And just seeing these iconic photos and reminding me of what she'd done in the show. And in particular, there was one from that famous black and white shoot of hers where she's wearing the um, the the roll neck black jumper and the leather sort of dress or harness or whatever it is. Do you know the oh, one? Oh, yeah, on... I don't, I don't, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, and she's she's got her hair cut fairly short and she's looking very demurely at the camera. Really cute shot. And I was looking at that thinking, I'm about to meet this person, you know, who at the time, it was only like, you know, say 15 years since she'd been on the show. But to me, I wasn't yet 15 years old myself, so to me 15 years was an eternity. And then she walked in, and obviously she was a lot younger 30 years ago than she is now, and she still looked remarkably like she did on the show. I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> and I I couldn't ask a question. I was just sitting there almost in the front row, just dumbfounded that it's Joe Grant from the television. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, and, and since then I, I met her again at console 88 because she came to that and I was helping in the sort of behind the scenes. And so I, I got to meet her in the, um, the breakout room or the green room or whatever you might want to call it, uh, one-on-one. -on -one. And so, you know, that was special too, but actually that first time of, of actually seeing my first on-screen person from Doctor Who, the first person from Doctor Who I ever saw was Dudley Simpson. Um, who obviously lived in Sydney and was a very easy get. But um, yes. Katie was the first on-screen person I'd seen. And, and for that reason, gosh, it's just very happy memories for me. Anyway, how about... Oh, well, that's very nice. Yeah. Have have you thought of one? Yeah, look, I'm going to go with uh, Sophie Aldred. Now, I was part of a committee down here in Melbourne that brought Sophie Aldred out uh, for a convention in November of '97. Mm -hmm. and she was a fantastic guest, and it was a really big deal to get Sophie Aldred out here at that stage. And But I remember sort of one evening in the middle of the convention when all the uh, attendees had gone back home for the night and they were all coming back the next day, but the committee was staying on, on site with the guests, and we opened a bottle of scotch and started just drinking casually with Sophie Aldred, and she was just so lovely and chatting to us about, you know, working on the show and about working with Sylvester McCoy and also other things that she'd done. And she was actually on her honeymoon at the time, which was partly how we got her out. We, we semi-paid for her honeymoon to Australia. Nice. Uh, it, was, it was a good, good deal for both of us. But, you know, she was, she was just in a really good place. And it was just really fun to 
actually relax with these people and have a long conversation with them that wasn't just who focused. It was really, you really felt like you're getting to know them. And so that would be my, my personal favorite. Yeah, that, that's really nice. And, and you're right when you can be in that environment and it's rare to get into, um, I guess sometimes in my life, maybe when I worked at Paramount Pictures, for example, and we'd have junkets bringing out, you know, stars of different films and in between their media interviews in the, the hotel we had them hold up in, you would get to have a bit of one-on-one just chat with them. I mean, some of them didn't want to chat, but, but others were quite, quite open to chatting. You know, I remember Marlene Ackerman from Watchmen was just a, a total chatty Cathy when it, when it came to the one journalist leaving before sure, the next one yeah. came in. She was just chatting away about anything. I thought, oh my God, I'm chatting away to Silk Spectre from Watchmen. This is amazing, <laughs> you know? And, and those sort of times, very rare that they are in the lives of mere mortals like us, uh, are just really, really cool. And in some ways, I wish when I was at Console 88, I had have been older, you know, sitting in the, the green room with Katie Manning and Mark Strickson and people like this, because I could have maybe had more interesting and adult conversations with them. But even still, there's, there's still special times in my mind, you know, whenever stuff like that has happened. No, that's, that's, that's so true. And Colin Baker is another one who's just, again, lovely to just chat to and, and so easy to chat to as well. I hear that. And I, I'd, I'd actually like to meet Colin. I mean, he, he's not my favourite doctor. I'll happily say that, but as a man, I think he's he's quite an interesting person. Yeah, he, he's very, very yeah, absolutely. Um, really interesting guy to talk to, and and yeah, he's not my favourite doctor either, but he's probably been the nicest of the doctors that I've met. Yeah. All right, Rob. I hope uh, that answers your questions. I quite enjoyed talking about that. It brought back some some real happy memories, actually. Yeah, thank you for that, Rob. And uh, I think now we'll throw to Ian Martin and the Doctor Who A to Z. Now, Ian's doing H this month? He is. He is. It is H. Okay. I'm I'm hoping for Happiness Patrol. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm hoping... Oh, what else could start with H? Harry Sullivan? He's got a, he's got a few things in there. I, I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> All right, I'll, uh, we'll have a listen. Thank you, Zach. All right, let's press play on the tape. Hello and welcome to this month's instalment of the A to Z of Doctor Who, which this month is brought to you by the letter H. I'm your host, Ian Martin. Hello. Um, Join me now, if you will, for some more of my um, loving and devoted tribute to Doctor Who. H. Hostile Action Displacement System, or HADS. Let's be honest here. If the TARDIS was really fitted with a hostile action displacement system, that means it won't land anywhere dangerous and it hides itself at the first sign of trouble, then the Doctor and his trusty crew would never have actually landed anywhere, would they? Given that the crew are captured, shot at or stumble across a murdered corpse within around 200 yards of every place they ever land, it's far more plausible to suppose that the TARDIS has a circuit that in fact guarantees it always lands in the worst, most dangerous and violent place imaginable. But then I suppose every episode would be set in Glasgow, wouldn't it? Hand of Omega An artefact from Old High Gallifrey, the Hand of Omega was a remote stellar manipulator, a device used by the Time Lords to customise stars with. You want a four-storey, dual-aspect star with a view of the seafront at Cromer? No problem. 
The device was half-inched by the first doctor when he fled Gallifrey and left on Earth as part of a trap for the Daleks, even though he hadn't met them yet or had any reason to want to destroy them. Still, the Daleks arrived in Shoreditch looking for the device and the Seventh Doctor was on hand to eat bacon sandwiches and let the evil pepper pots from Scaro steal the weapon. Turns out it was all a massive deception and when Davros opened his present it promptly flew to Scaro, turned its son supernova and destroyed the Dalek homeworld. This must have made Davros look like a right tit. After a vote of no confidence in Davros... The creator of the Daleks moved to a backbench role and spent decades rebuilding his political capital. A second chance was granted to him to execute one of his plans, and this time his idea to capture the Doctor and steal his regenerative power was only foiled when the sewers of Scaro exploded, covering both him and all the Daleks in sentient effluence. Proof that the Daleks always have had shit for brains. Harriet Jones, Prime Minister and MP for Flydale North. Yes, we know who you are. Hartnell, William. The actor William Hartnell was almost 90 years old when he got the part of The Doctor in 1963 and threw himself fully into the role by hating children and being generally awful to work with. It says here. His original interpretation of The Doctor was of a mysterious, irascible old man with a mane of white hair whose favourite period of history was the French Revolution who smoked like a chimney, and who enjoyed nothing so much as bashing in the heads of unsuspecting cavemen with big rocks. As the show became a massive television hit, thanks in almost every conceivable way to the success of the Daleks, Hartnell bedded in for the long haul, even though it eventually became clear he was no longer fit enough for the rigours of the weekly recording schedule. Learning lines grew increasingly difficult for the actor who would mangle his dialogue in the studio to piss off everyone else, who then had to improvise wildly. Early companion Ian Chesterton was variously referred to as Chesterton, Chesterfield and Chessington World of Adventure. And after he left, it was open season on companions' names, planet names, exposition and so on. After the mercifully lost Tenth Planet, Episode 1, where Hartnell strides from the TARDIS and introduces himself as I'm Doctor What? Hmm. Who? F***! BBC bosses took urgent steps to replace him as quickly as possible. They opted to recast the Doctor with a looky-likey in the hope that no one would notice, but the closest look they could get was Patrick Troughton, so they were forced to make up some nebulous guff about renewal, thus accidentally giving the programme unlimited longevity by creating a lead role that could be recast over and over again. Hartnell returned for the Three Doctors in 1970-something, when his Doctor was portrayed as a confused old man on a toilet, awkwardly speaking lines from an autocue into a camera. Most people will tell you that we wouldn't have Doctor Who as we know it today without William Hartnell, and that we owe him a lot. Fortunately, this doesn't mean we actually have to watch any of his stories, though, because they were bloody boring. Hath the... Stupid fish-headed monsters from the worst episode of Doctor Who ever, The Doctor's Daughter. Researching them would entail watching The Doctor's Daughter again, and frankly there are some sacrifices I'm not prepared to make. So from memory they're a race of peace-loving, gentle men with the heads of fish who have to walk around with goldfish bowls on their heads to keep themselves immersed in water. I'm pretty sure Martha fell in love with one of them, and, and part of me even dimly remembers that this aquatic life form went on to drown but that can't be true because that would just be laughable. 
They've cropped up as extras and background aliens a couple of times in their, uh, since their one story, but let's hope we don't see these lugubrious pilchards ever again. Hath-nots, the... The opposite of the hath, the hath-nots, have human heads, but sadly growing out of the bodies of normal-sized goldfish. This lot couldn't even invade a branch of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Heaven sent, hell bent. Two directorially brilliant episodes which closed PCAP's second run of Doctor Who stories in, I thought, an unsatisfactory way. Heaven Sent saw the baffled Doctor blundering about wearily in a nonsensical realm where nothing made sense. An homage, if you will, to a famous occasion when Tom Baker woke up with a staggering hangover while on location in a quarry-side bed-and-breakfast in Sussex and proceeded to trash the place. Then the Doctor gets out of the confession dial by... Um, <clears throat> punching his way through a wall of solid diamond over millions of years, which is how eager consumers have to gain ingress to high-fashion emporia at the post-Ramadan sales in the Dubai Mall. Suddenly, after all these millions of years, the Doctor is back on his ancestral home, the long-lost world he's been looking for for so, so long. And then... uh, And then... So if the Doctor has been desperately searching for Gallifrey ever since the day of the Doctor, why did he do so little when he eventually got there? All he did was shout a bit at Rassilon, hide in an old shed for a while, then swiftly escape in an old Type 40 TARDIS to resume his life of abducting pretty young women from their time streams. Yeah, no, actually that works. Helmic Regulator Am I the only person who thinks this sounds a bit rude? Holloway, Dr Grace. Whenever I'm asked which Doctor Who companion I'd most like to get off with, Grace Holloway from 1996's Doctor Who TV movie entitled Doctor Who the Television Movie is always there as an unexpected and slightly outré suggestion because you can only talk about episode one of Planet of Fire for so long. Oh, Turlo. Human Nature. One of the finest Virgin New Adventure novels, and if, like me, you choose to accept these as part of the canon, then this is the only adventure the Doctor has had twice. Well, I say that, but most of those Terry Nation Dalek tales were pretty similar, weren't they? (laughs) And there's only one story you can really do with the Silurians and and the Cybermen. Um, Hungry Earth. Currently being overanalyzed by Who fans keen to triangulate where writer Chris Chibnall might take the show when he becomes showrunner, uh, if this story is any indication we're in for a sort of homage to the Pertwee era where the effects and costumes look great but the adventures are duller than watching paint dry. Once again, the Silurians awake from their luxurious lion only to end up in unsuccessful negotiations with humanity to share the planet they technically have first dibs on. It's interesting that in Moffat's era, humanity is able to make peace and share the world with a few Zygons, who are technically political refugees and asylum seekers, but they won't share it with the Silurians, who were, after all, here first. These are interesting questions about race, about sharing, about who has the right to live and work where. I put these questions to the outgoing UKIP leader, Nigel Farage, but he told me to piss off. Hurt, John. Sir John Vincent Hurt was born in 1940 and only became famous when he portrayed the Ninth Doctor, known as the War Doctor, in the 50th anniversary special Doctor Who and the Day of the um, Daleks. 
Following on from his forerunner, William Hartnell, John Hurt's war doctor was best remembered as a confused old man who people were inexplicably frightened of, in particular future incarnations David Tennant and Matt Smith, or 10 and 11, if you want to be vulgar. The war doctor's list of evil deeds included using his TARDIS to smash through walls and sort of benevolent, twinkly stuff. He was supposed to have originally destroyed Gallifrey to end the Time War until 10 and 11 went back in time to stop him doing this because it was, after all, a bit much. How we'd all love to be able to nip back in time to stop our younger selves doing embarrassing things. I myself might go back in time to when I was five or so and I'd been abandoned at an organised football match at a holiday camp. I hated football and knew none of the rules, so after kicking a free kick in the wrong direction I was shouted at by the surly bluecoat who'd been left with the task of refereeing and I ran away crying from the humiliation I'd erased that actually thinking about it if I could go back and edit my life with time travel it's more a question of which bits would I keep in Uh, I digress. Hertz Doctor wore a battered old leather jacket, which regenerated into a newer, less battered leather jacket when Hurt, or Nine, regenerated into Christopher Eccleston, also confusingly known as Nine. God, Moffat has made it so confusing. You know what he should have done, thinking about it? He should have put the War Doctor incarnation in between Troughton and Pertwee, because we never actually saw that regeneration. Um, And it would have fitted in with the whole Season 6B theory, and it would explain why Pertwee's first act was to stumble from the TARDIS, looking aghast, then just pass out in a devastated heap, which most of us just put down to a heavy night of welcome drinks in the BBC bar the night before. Welcome to the Letter Lords, with me, Bob Fleming from Proctoru. And me, Jim Cameron from the Crinoid Podcast. Actually, should we try and trick him, Jim? I should have thought of this. Alright, you're listening to the Letter Lords with me, Jim Cameron from the Crinoid Podcast. And me, Bob Fleming from the Northern <laughs> Proctoru Podcast. Should we try and roll reverse, Jim? That sounds a bit kinky, doesn't it? Anyway, <laughs> how are you doing? You alright? I've done worse. Sorry about my impression about your own Proctor Who. Well, as well you should be, sorry. Just just all you cockneys sound the same to us northern folk. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're north of the Watford Gap, you all merge into one. As far as exactly, I'm yeah, just blah, 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 that's how we, how we sound. <laughs> are you all right, mate? Yeah, not bad, thanks. Uh, are you all right? Your your chin must be colder than, than usual. Yeah, for those that don't know, I used to have, have an impressive beard for many years, which now I don't have because I've had to shave it off because of beard alopecia, which mm. apparently is a thing I didn't know existed. Anyway, it's sweeping the world. Yeah, it's fine. I'm I'm happy still. I'm happy with myself. That's I, I do feel I've lost my mojo a little bit. So, mm. well, I'm worried about the badges. Where are they going to hide now? Your beard. <laughs> it's not just the badges you've got to worry about, Jim. <laughs> yeah. So here we are, Letter Lords again, mm-hmm. Doctor Who magazine, October 2016. Um, issue number 503, 499. Um, just, just reading the cover. Um, so, should we, should we uh, I'm not kick surprised on? I was going to say this. That's not the number, is 
ISDN number. Uh, right, so so we have some a couple of letters this week, don't we? Mm. Uh, the first one was the Star Letter from Greg Dunn from Estonia, um, and it's just talking about Mr. Jonathan Morris um, and about missing episodes, really, and just about which one, if you were to trade one for another, so if you were to have one coming back, which one would you trade off to never see again? And this dude, I think, looking through here, is the Space Pirates. Yeah, Jonathan Morris was doing a thing about the Space Pirates, and he said, uh, well, you know, you'd quite like to lose that and gain something else. Yeah, which, I, I mean, I've only ever read the book of the Space Pirates, and I enjoyed it, but it was till it's dicks that writ it, writ it, wrote it. Because um, he, he just writes so beautifully well. The target novels that he does, every single one's a belter. Mm. So it's probably a lot better. I have listened to the audio, but I don't really remember much about it, so I can't really comment if it was crap or not. <laughs> well, it's got quite a poor reputation, isn't it? Yeah. I haven't read the book, but I did go through the... Um, for some reason, it took my fancy to, to go through the reconstruction of it. Uh, which I went through the whole thing. I quite enjoyed it. It's a bit repetitive, I suppose. Milo Clancy is that sort of gold prospector type character who's intensely irritating. Yeah. But I quite liked some of the space. They didn't have a lot of the space stuff available, but, you know, it looked like the um, models of the spaceships and stuff looked pretty good. Cool. Um, and it was quite interesting. You know, it was a bit of a space opera, but unfortunately it wasn't much more than that. There was perhaps not enough plot to go around. Plus the regulars are barely in it, are they? No, Patrick Trout and, and uh, Jamie and Zoe are barely in it, but um, which is the best best part about Patrick Trout's Doctor Who is when they're in it because they're the best companion. Uh, like for me, Patrick Trout and Fraser Hines are the best companion partnership, and Wendy Padbury when she comes into it, she's class, man. Them three together yeah. are ace. That final season of Trout is amazing. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, and a, a lot of it remains as well, apart from the Space Pirates. Yeah, almost as if it was done deliberately. <laughs> There's one uh, one episode exists so you can see Milo Clancy making his breakfast. Um, Excellent. So you can see you can see how bad the padding problem is from that. Here's a question for you then. Right, mm. this is this might sound quite severe. Mm. I really want the Dalek Master Plan to come back because it is the longest adventure in Doctor Who ever. Mm. And the two parts I've seen, I've listened to the audio a good few times. It just looks amazing, man. And I would I'm going to be brave. I would swap every single other missing episode, and I love Troughton, by the way, so much, so I'd love to see more Troughton, for Dalek Master's plan to become back complete. Mm. I know it's a pretty big thing to say, because I do love Troughton, and I'd love to see every all of Troughton back, but I would love to see the Dalek Master plan in all of its glory. I think it's class. Have you listened to it and stuff before? Yeah, well, I mean, that would be the one that I would like most to come back as well. You know, it's yeah. sprawling, you know, 12-episode epic, isn't it? Of, uh, uh, I mean, obviously, Feast of Stephen, I can take or leave. But <laughs> <laughs> And a Merry Christmas to everybody. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I mean, the rest of it, is just, yeah, it just sounds excellent. I mean, it's half Terry Nation, isn't it, and half Dennis Spooner, I think. Spooner, yeah. And yeah. then you've got Mavic Chan, who's just one of the best yeah. villains in Doctor Whoever, what's his name? The actor, because he was in he was in um, the Invasion as well, wasn't he? he was the Tobias Vaughan, Tobias wasn't he? Tobias Vaughan, Kevin Stoney. That's him. He's a brilliant actor. Yeah, he's really really good. So I, I would do that. I'd trade all of the missing ones for the Dalek Master Plan. Mm. Well, that'd certainly be my top. I used to wonder about that or Power of the Daleks, but interestingly, of mm. course, we are getting it back in AU format, though not as transmitted. What do you make of all that? 
Well, um, because it was like built up as a big announcement, I thought it was going to be the found it or found something. So I was a bit not disappointed. I was like, yeah, nice one, because I do like the animations of the missing episodes. I like the telly players that to lose cannon and stuff like that I do on YouTube. Mm. Because it just adds a bit more... Visuals add a bit more to the story and make you understand it better, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I wasn't over the moon about it. I was like, yeah, good, but it's not Power of the Daleks, is it, on telly? But yeah, that, that sounds negative. I, I, I'll get it, obviously buy it, and I'll watch it, and I'll thoroughly enjoy it. And it's one of the, the ones I've always wanted to see. So the only way I'm going to see it, obviously, is by this animation. And I do really like the animations. I think they're cool. But yeah, I, I think it's because it was built up to me. We found da, 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 <laughs> nothing. Um, so <laughs> you know, so it's a bit. Yeah, it's great, but it wasn't what I was hoping for. I think, Jim. Yeah, I think I feel much the same. I mean, it's a story. You, you know, it's very interesting. Of course, it's uh, Patrick Trout's first story, so you get that like weird stuff when he's just regenerated. Um, I, I'm guessing this means that from all of the hunt that uh, has been done by Philip Morris and others that they haven't found a saleable version of live-action Power of the Daleks. No. So this is something, and yeah, I look forward to watching it. It's be a way to watch it. It's better than any other way we have at the moment of watching it. Absolutely, yeah. But it's disappointing that you know it wasn't part animated and part found. Is is yeah. What, that's what that's thinking, that's yeah. even if it had been one or two or three episodes, you know, like half and half mm. or something like that, would have been great. But. I'm not going to complain too much. You know, it's fantastic they brought it back because mm. what I really wanted to see was Patrick Troughton not being Patrick Troughton, if that <laughs> yeah. makes sense. Because when you listen to the the audio, it's it doesn't feel like Patrick Troughton, but that's great because it's, it's his mm. first episode as a Doctor. So he's sort of getting his way in there, working himself out, and it's I really wanted to see that. I, I found that fascinating as, as Patrick Troughton is my second favourite Doctor Who. Mm, yeah, well, he's he may well be my favourite. I haven't quite decided. Well, I would put, probably put up number one, but McCoy was my doctor. Do you know what I mean? Like, my doctor, so... But McCoy's based on pretty much Troughton, so... Pretty much, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the good thing about Troughton is, if you see him in other things, he's very good at being creepy. And I think he's quite creepy in that first episode of Power of the Daleks, isn't he? Yeah, it's not. he's, he's not the reassuring sort of slightly zany uncle kind of thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? I I, he's a bit of a wizard... Is Patrick Troutman. Mm. There's something about him that he's just, he comes in and he's all like bumbly and everyone's yeah. a bit like, oh, who's this idiot? Then suddenly, bang, the tables are turned because of that sort of false sense of security he's given everyone else mm. or insecurity, whatever, and just gone bang, turn the tables and he just becomes the most powerful person in the room. Yeah. And that's what his gift is and that's what McCoy kind of had. And Matt Smith, I'd say they're, they're my three favourite doctors for that reason. That's my template for a doctor. So yeah, I'm... Um, I'm all right with it, Jim. Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to watch it. But, you know, I hope the door isn't completely closed for oh, God, live no. action somewhere down the line that may still be recovered. You know, we live in hope, don't we, us who fans? Yeah. What would be your sort of top? What's what's the top of your list? What would you trade something for in the missings? Well, as I say, like, Dalek Masterman has pretty much always been top of my list ever since I heard about it, really, because, you know, it's one of the most disappointing things was to, was to read about it, you know, the archives and stuff in yeah. Doctor Who uh, Monthly, as it, as it was then, probably. And, you know, all that planet hopping and stuff that's involved in there, you know, all those different scenarios they get involved in, you know, the Daleks and the Tell, you know, at, uh, not quite the height of Dalek mania, but, you know, certainly with, with the Doctor that um, you most associate with, with mm. Dalek stuff. So I've always kind of fancied it, and then... 
listening to the audio, I haven't sat down and done a reconstruction, but listening to the audio, I was like, yeah, this would be fabulous to see this. It would. So, um, but I kind of had Power of the Daleks in reserve, really. You know, that would be my second favourite. So perhaps Evil of the Daleks. Or... I was going to say Evil as well, yeah. Cause mm. We've had a little teaser of that because we've got a, an episode of that, haven't we? So, yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoyed Lost in Time when they brought that out. Yeah. And I still go back to that and I just love getting the little glimpses. But since uh, on Prog to Here, when we've been doing the randomizer. Yeah. We did the abominable, I can't say it, the abominable <laughs> snowmen. <laughs> snowmen. Um, it was such a great thing to review a missing episode mm. and find it and just get to know it really well because we're doing the Myth Makers next. Uh, and there's, there's nothing of that. So, yes. But discovering Loose Cannon, the dude on YouTube, and everyone go on YouTube, search Loose Cannon. Uh, and this dude's done all of the missing adventures in a teleplay, hasn't he? Mm. And he's put loads of effort and time into it and hats off to him because it's fantastic. It's very good stuff, yeah. So I'd recommend going to YouTube and checking out what he's done. I, I'd, I'd love to know who he or she is and just, just say thank you very much for what you've given to the Who world for the Missing Adventures as well, really. Yeah, I think so. I mean, maybe more than one person. I don't know anything about the... There's a, the, there's what, there's a few, like, but he seems to be the one, or she seems to be the one that's sort of really... Got the full full catalogue in there, really. So, well, I mean, but, but yeah. I mean, loose cannon might be more than one person. All oh, right, yeah. So, what yeah, you mean? But it may not. It may be one very hardworking person. Bless him. But yeah, thanks very much to them. Yeah, whoever they, he, she are. Yeah, mm. top top stuff. Excellent. Mm. Okay. Well, should we move on to the next letter then? Why not? Uh, we've managed to um, find two letters to talk about this time, which is <laughs> two more than usual. Yep. This is from Dean Teasdale from Gateshead Man. We are liking that. See, I, I can do offensive accents. Well. <laughs> you can. Have you seen Jimmy Nail before? Liking that. <laughs> I remember when there were ships on the town. Aye. Yeah, have you seen how weird seen pet and that? Anyway, right, I'll stop that, Jim. My apologies. Anyway, Dean, <laughs> Dean writes as follows An omission in the box out potted history of the Ogrons in Doctor Who Fiction in DWM50T's Fact of Fiction on Frontier in Space was their appearance in Ben Aronovich's and Kate Orman's New Adventures book, So Vile a Sin. I'm afraid we established before recording that neither of us have read that. So no, we have not, unfortunately. Yeah. I might track it down now because I do like the Ogrons. Mm. Anyway, he goes on to say, here we got not only a bite of Ogron philosophy and some insight into their social structure, but also a glimpse of them using Dalek technology to free themselves from the tyrannical grip of the Earth Empire. Mm. I'd love to see these big hairy gumbies back in the TV series. There's plenty of comedy and pathos to be had from them. Also, how come Kate Um's never written for the show? She was the best writer in the new adventures that the new adventures had by a country mile. Can't comment because I've not read the book or any of Kate Orman's work. But after this letter, um, especially from a Geordie, it's got to be true, because all Geordies speak the truth, by the of way. Of course. That's one thing about Newcastle people. Um, so I might have to check it out. I think, I'm, I think I might have this, actually. So it'd be a shame not to. Orgrons, man. <laughs> Class, aren't they? Mm, well, I'm uh, ancient enough, unlike you, Bob, <laughs> to uh, vaguely remember them when they when they were screened at the time. And until the um, Sontarans turned up in the time or in Sontaran experiment, I was always most petrified of the Ogrons. Mm. They were the ones I always thought, oh, you know, imagine them turning up in your house sort of thing. Gotcha. <laughs> turning a corner and bumping into an Ogron. So, you know, they're huge actors inside, weren't they? And um, yeah. very good uh, 
masks and stuff from uh, John Friedlander, who was the governor of all of the mm. uh, top two mask makers in the 70s, wasn't he? Really good. I mean, it was good, I think, for the um, Daleks to have these kind of foot soldiers, because obviously you can't do everything with a sucker and an egg whisk. No. Um, so it's, it's good to have these foot soldiers. Believe me, Jim, you can do a few things with an egg whisk. <laughs> yes, without photos, you know, we don't believe you. But... Um, and I always thought that, that, you know, that moment when they storm the uh, prison ship in Resurrection of the Daleks, I'd yeah. always thought how much better that would have been had it been Ogrons and not those sort of Earth soldiers with the uh, stupid Dalek hats on. Yeah, they're a good monster. And I love the fact that they're just big, muscly grunts for hire kind mm. of thing. Yeah. It's a great idea for a... I don't think we've really had anything else like that in Doctor Who, have we? Sort of a big alien race who's just there for muscle they tend Not to really. be human or something or robots or whatever mm. but the ogrons are quite different i know that i mean my one of my favorite um well definitely one of my favorite pertwee adventures is frontier in space mm. and they add to that because you've got a lot of monster in that haven't you you know, I'm not saying the Draconians are a monster, but they are monster-like. They've got the prosthetic and all that kind of stuff. The alien species properly dressed up mm. to be aliens, and they're fantastic. I love the Draconians; they're probably one of my yeah, favorite too, yeah. favorite um, aliens in Doctor Who of all time. But the Orgrons, and again, you've got the monsters of the Orgrons. You've got the Daleks in there and everything like that. But like you're saying there as well, Jim, it's hands for the Daleks, mm. and they're not just loyal to the Daleks. They work for the Master. They work for whoever. They're just basically guns for hire. And one thing like. Dean Teasdale is saying in this letter is that I would like to see more depth of the character because they literally are just grunts, aren't they? Yeah. And I would like to see their their sort of home world, you know, the person that, you know, signs the contracts with the Daleks and the Master and all this kind of stuff. Just give them a bit more because they're a big, awesome, powerful monster, you know. Mm. I, mean, I mean, two minds about making them more sophisticated. I prefer them in Day of the Daleks, to be honest, because they're—I um, yeah, think they're more menacing in that and less sort of comedic. Yeah, they are a bit daft, aren't they, in Frontier in Space? Yeah, well, they're all sort of running terror from that enormous orange <laughs> scrotum <laughs> yeah. monster, don't they? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, if I saw an enormous scrotum on a hillside, I'd probably run in terror as well. But I mean, the way they did it was a little bit am drama, I thought, because you know none of them are particularly good actors in there necessarily. <laughs> Just wait till they come to Yorkshire, Jim. <laughs> Loads of massive scrotums on hillsides chasing <laughs> after <laughs> Remind me never to go there. <laughs> but yeah, I know what you mean. But I mean, I do, I do love that um, super intelligent uh, Ogron in uh, Day of the Daleks. He says, uh, no complications. I know what you mean. I don't mean like going, oh, hey, yes, hello, I've got to negotiate <laughs> this contract. But that kind of just, there must be a little bit more depth you can give them. Yeah, without them being, without them getting too silly. I mean, it would be interesting if you, yeah, I mean, they, they probably would have a leader somewhere who, yeah. and if they're mercenary races, then there must be some kind of, you know, give and take. I don't know if they go so far as contracts, maybe they do, but, you know, there'd have to be some sort of uh, payment for what they do and that would have to be negotiated. So, yeah, I think yeah. you could make a bit more out of them and it is a kind of a cover if they're just guns for hire for anybody. A bit like in Frontier in Space, you know, when the Doctor says, uh, uh, well, it may not be the Daleks because they're just guns for hire. They could be working for anybody. Yeah, exactly. As it turns out, they're working for the master, and well, for the master principally, isn't it? Yeah, they're going to get terrified when the Daleks turn up. So, yeah, I think they're quite an interesting race. And as it happens, um, I was scouring the internet for um, <laughs> free Doctor Who comic uh, material, and I found it. I think it's Warlord of the Ogrons or something. It was, it was called. 
Right. But it's about some scientist and his mate who land on a planet and they sort of make one of the Ogrons super intelligent. I can't remember the reasoning behind it. Yeah. And, um, you know, they'll come a cropper as a result. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, they're, a, they're a good monster. Mm. Great monster. I'm a fan of the Ogrons, definitely. Yeah, me too. And I think they could come back sort of bigger and, and scarier than ever, really. Yeah. But of course, you know, the current series would probably have four foot tall children playing like they did with the Sontarans. Not that I'm <laughs> bitter about that. No, but the Sontarans are small. That's the whole point of the Sontarans. They are small and sort of five footish, aren't they? Well. They're not big but, and menacing. The big and menacing Sontarans are crap. No, but Whereas, Kevin, Kevin Lindsay is the ultimate that's what I mean. Sontaran. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, and he's like five foot. Yeah, so he doesn't look like a child, though, does he? Mm. He looks like a short, stocky, nasty brute, doesn't he? These ones look like kids. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I, just, I thought they could have been dirtier and rougher. Yeah. If you see, I mean, they were a bit polished and purple. And, yeah. now, they're, and now they're a bit silly with Dan Starkey, who I love. Mm. I think he's really funny. But the Sontarans have just lost all of that sort of scariness or whatever they had. Because they, they were... Oh, well, like they used to say, scare the crap out of me as a kid. Yeah, uh, and they, they didn't bring them back dark enough for me, I thought. No, no, I don't think they did. Right, lovely. Ogrons. Mm. Thumbs up. Yes. Good. Well, that's the letters for this time. Mm. Well, another one of the big features in the, this month's issue was the Peter Davison interview. Now, what did you make of that, Bob? Amazing. I mean, these last few magazines that have come out with the Tom Baker, the Stephen Moffat interviews, we're getting honesty. <laughs> we're not just getting re- you know regurgitations of stories we've heard so many times. We're getting proper stories that I'm like, wow, really? Oh, that happened. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I mean, some of the, some of the revelations that were made, because Peter Davison's cool. Peter Davison's cool because he got lots of work after Doctor Who. Mm. And he was a really good Doctor Who. And everyone sort of likes Peter Davison really, I think, don't they? Oh, I, I think, think, so. I, I I think so. it's great. But he's also a fantastic actor who was successful before and very successful since. He's never stopped working. No. Whereas I think people like Tom Baker, because he was did it for so long and he was just Doctor Who, he was so Im- embodied in the part. You know, that's all he ever did. And Colin Baker, he had a successful career before Doctor Who with brothers and stuff like that, but he didn't do anything much after Doctor Who, TV-wise. No, I think he's well. He's more of a stagey actor, I think. Anyway, oh, which very, you know, very... which is to his detriment, I think, when he's in front of cameras. But yeah, but I think that's where he you know makes his living really most of the time. Absolutely, but I think it has to Peter Davison's sort of comfortableness talking about you know whatever he wants really, because mm. he's a, he's a nice guy, and that's why he's got so much work. You know, from from reading that interview, it was him saying, "I'm just a nice guy. Everyone recommends me because I can act, and I'm a nice guy." So I'm not a nightmare, I'm not hard work, I'm not any of these things that a lot yes. of actors are. You know, I'll do what the director wants, I'll do what the producer wants, I'm, I'll turn up on time, I'm reliable. Make everyone feel comfortable. Yeah, comfortable, I'm not a diva. Great, nice atmosphere, yeah. Tom Baker, Colin, you know what I mean? He's not them people, and that's why he's been so successful, and he's a fantastic bloke and actor. But I think the, the most fascinating bit in the interview was when he, did the, when he was talking about trying to do the five-ish doctors. <laughs> and he's talking about how prickly, kind of... Like, Tom Baker was a bit of a sneak. Yeah. It turns out, because he was doing it, but he didn't tell him. And he has no... I suppose he's got no reason to tell him, you know, that he was doing the actual Day of the Doctor. Well, he might have signed a non-disclosure agreement. Like exactly. Else does, yeah. uh, but Peter Davison wasn't necessarily having a go at that, but obviously he was chasing him wanting to appear in the five-ish Doctors. Yeah. And then you've got Colin Baker, who's got this 
absolute paranoia about the BBC and a massive hatred towards them. Mm. And I suppose kind of, only kind of, rightly so. But, you know, he was a terrible Doctor Who. <laughs> and he was on telly. Big finish. He's great. You know, I love his big finish stuff. But his Doctor Who is the worst Doctor Who we've yeah. ever seen. It's yeah, it it's horrible. I'm not blaming Colin Baker for that. Like, it's not his fault. I'm a bit. A little, a little bit, but... He, I mean, yeah, it, no one did him any favours. Of course incl- not, no. including himself, Including himself, really, but... <laughs> But he's he's blaming it on everyone else, isn't he? Yeah. You, you've got to sort of just get over it, man. It was like... A long time ago. 20, 25, 30 years ago. <laughs> get on with it, Carl. Well, I don't know if the BBC have, you know, crossed him since, but, I mean, if he's... If he's uh, no, the other... His antipathy towards the BBC is still because of, you know, that. I mean, Graydon, whoever, whoever <laughs> sacked him, have long since moved on, so... It's not the same organisation, is it? But he's, he was still saying to Peter Davison, with the script, I want this bit in. The yeah. BBC will try and remove it and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And he's he's got this massive, like, sort of paranoia. Chip on his shoulder, isn't it? Yeah, chill out, Carl. <laughs> but stuff like that, yeah, I mean, that's what we're getting from these interviews now, is just, like... But honestly, and Peter Davison wasn't slagging off Colin Baker, by the way, by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a case of, you know, this is what he's like. Well, he said, you know, I think he said he's a lovely bloke most of the time. But, yeah, you know, he is, yeah. But, but he has these, has these moments of, you know, his deep paranoia and stuff. And, uh, you know, I think he kind of likes Tom Baker. He just can't work him out. But it's mm. refreshing to hear people saying stuff that isn't just gushy, lovey stuff all the time. And uh, yeah. because he's, a, you know, not Moffat, because obviously he's still in the thick of it. But, you know, the likes of Tom Baker and Peter Davison don't have a party line to toe anymore. So they can just say what they like. And it's it's candid and it's refreshing and it's really really interesting that's what i mean it's it's all constructive because the clever people they're not just saying so and so he did this he did that bitching <laughs> it's just you know this is what it's like and this is why probably and it's only me because I, I don't know colin baker says peter davison i don't know what he's thinking right. that's just me surmising you know what it might be i don't know tom baker says peter davison it's do you know what i mean yeah and that's what is fascinating and, and i really hope they keep getting these interviews because they are proper interviews they're not like you're saying there, Jim, towing the party line. Yeah. Which is why I stopped buying Doctor Who magazine before I started buying it, obviously, f- to do what we're doing now. Because mm. you could read that boring crap that we're putting in there on the internet. Now it's really good. I'm so pleased I'm back on board. Mm. Well, I think it's, it's Benjamin Cook who does most interviews. I mean, some of the Tom Baker ones are quite old, aren't they? But um, yeah. the modern stuff is him. And I think he's not afraid to ask the tricky question. No. It's not about being Paxman either. It's just... It's, no. It's just having a, I think he seems to get in the right environment. They're always at their house having a cup of tea or a glass of wine or. Yeah. And, the, the, and he must say to them, look, whatever we do, it's going to go to print. All right. <laughs> yeah. And and that's fine. And they're fine yeah. with it. And it's, I think he's, he must have a sort of social respect with them or yeah. some kind of, I'm not saying friendship, but something. Whoever he is, he's doing a fantastic job, man. And yeah, good on is. you, Benjamin Cook. Yeah, long may continue. I'll be interested to see yeah. who they can get hold of next, really. Mm. Good stuff. Well, perhaps the uh, biggest feature, well, I mean, it's a big, long interview, but one of the other things that takes up most of the pages in the, the magazine, magazine is the Series 9 season survey. Indeed. Should we a quick touch on them? Yeah, just a touch. let's just do the, the headlines, I suppose, and see whether we agree with them. Mm. Uh, first category, favourite story. I'll read out the top five. Heaven Sent, top Zygon Invasion Inversion, next. 
And then the Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar, open a third. Face the Raven, which has appeared to be uh, Clara's departure uh, for mm. four. And then the, uh, you know, the second two-parter, Under the Lake Before the Flood. Mm. In fifth, Sleep No More Bottom. Good. Because it was terrible. <laughs> I wouldn't put it bottom, though. I, I quite enjoyed it. I, mean, I can see the flaws, but uh, for me, uh, Husbands of River Song, which has came seventh in the poll. Oh, God, yeah. That becomes about 15th out of 10 for me. Well, I definitely have... I'd agree with Heaven Sent, but I loved Under the Lake was the best Doctor Who we've seen in a long time. That was my favourite episode of Doctor Who, hmm. of the last series, just because it was a proper Doctor Who episode. I didn't get on board with the Zygon invasion or invasion. I, I don't get Peter Harness. I'm not a fan <laughs> of his writing. Yeah. I, I genuinely don't get him. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But that's me. It, it genuinely is me. Everyone else loves his stuff, so, you know, whatever really. But I'd have put Heaven Sent... Under the Lake, not saying before the flood, but Under the Lake in second and The Magician's Apprentice in third. That would have been my top three. Mm, it's not a million miles away from what they chose. Uh, yeah, for me, Heaven Sent was just amazing. It was mm. so kind of haunting. I still think about it now sort of thing. Yeah. I agree largely with the top five. Zygon Inversion, Zygon uh, Invasion, Inversion. Yeah, it was really good. I'm not sure whether it beats the uh, the opener, Magician's Apprentice, which is familiar. I thought that was excellent as well. But yeah, mm. certainly the top five is probably what I would put in the top five. But um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens with this promised uh, prequel or sequel to Sleep No More that uh, Mark Gatiss has been threatening. Looks like that might happen. I hope it's a million gazillion times better than Sleep No More. <laughs> I know you weren't. You were all right with it actually, weren't you? Because you did. Um... It was all right. Yeah. You did your feedback for Prog True, didn't you, for us? Yeah, I did, oh, did my, little, my little bit for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, he must be taking drugs again, Jim. So, Well, I can neither <laughs> confirm nor deny it. But no, I thought, I thought it was okay. I mean, yeah, it's, I can see what's was, wrong with it, but yeah, yeah. it was harmless fun, I thought. And then we've got, just to touch on this, best male guest star, Judy and Bleach, Davros, without a doubt, yeah. at 78%. <laughs> it's pretty conclusive, isn't it? Of course it is. And two was Riggs, Rigby. There wasn't a lot to choose from, I don't think. Reece Shearsmith, awful. Rufus Hound. I quite liked him. I liked him. Even Nicholas Briggs is a Dalek. That's pretty... I don't know how that sounds. But yeah, Judy and Bleach by a country mile. Best female guest there. Female? Best, fe- uh, best male <laughs> guest. Sorry, I, was, uh, I love that Julia Bleach. She's great. I was going to move on to the female guest there. <laughs> oh, I was, I was, I was quite yourself. ahead of myself. Yeah. yeah. Michelle Gomez with a hefty 52 and Alex Kingston with 32. Mm-hmm. And uh, Osgood with 30. It's quite a even keel, kind of, going below that. Yeah, it is pretty much. Cass. Cass, it was Cass. She was the uh, the deaf deputy controller of the sea base thing. In the, oh, yeah. Yeah, she was good. The lake. Yeah, I liked, I liked her. There was a lot of strong female characters because all five of them, I know people aren't, you know, massive fan of the top two to a degree, or certain people aren't in um, River Song and uh, Missy, but mm. great strong female casting. I'm really surprised with the male one that Julian Bleach and the people that are mentioned. I think that was one of my comments in season nine. Some of the supporting cast wasn't that great. The females were. I think it was the males letting the bloody side down, Jim. Well, you might be right, because I mean, in terms of the, the poll, I mean, if you're getting in fifth place, the, the voice of the Daleks. The Daleks, I know, that's what I mean, yeah. Something's it's, not uh, going right, is it? Yeah, uh, so I think I, I must have been up to something there. Yeah, Yeah, then we've got our villains, mm. and quite rightly, Julian Bleach again. Yeah, conclusive 70%, yeah. The best Davros. I know Michael Wish, Ooh, yeah. Tricky. Terry Malloy's brilliant as well. 
I mean, Michael Wish is the one, the Sean Connery of Davros, but <laughs> Julian Bleach, man, he's awesome. Perhaps more range than the uh, Michael Wish of Davros, perhaps, because it's, you know, more range is demanded for in this, in yeah. this script. But, um, yeah, I think he I think he might just edge it, because a huge debt is owed to Michael Wish for what he did to create, mm. create the character, because I'm not sure he got a huge amount of direction on that. I think he just decided to do it in that kind of soft voice. You know, and mm. going occasionally mental, and that's what everyone's done since. You know, except Terry Malloy was normally at about eleven most of the time. <laughs> but he, he yeah, but had some he, good quality. He's good. He's he, good. I do, yeah. I do enjoy his performance, but he's perhaps a bit more ranty than the others. But um, I think with Julian Bleach, we're back to that quite a rounded Davros again, and particularly with you know, op- mm. opening his eyes was um, you know, divisive, wasn't oh, amazing, it? Amazing you know, For Davros to weep in front of us, I thought was quite an incredible moment. Absolutely. Then there's just Missy. There's uh, Bonnie, played by General Louise Corman. Mm, that's interesting. A shielder. So it's like kind of what this sort of surmises to me is this mix and match of stuff going on. So a shielder's in the female guest star and she's a villain, but she's not a villain. And yeah, it's kind of a kingfish is like number five. The kingfisher, the, gi- yeah. the giant blue bird, the fisher king. You mean? Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah the kingfisher. That's the one, <laughs> fisher king. Yes, I know. I know what. I, I, up north, you see words the right way around are, are relevant to us, Jim. You see. <laughs> I thought you'd been in too many curry houses <laughs> ordering bites of kingfisher. I, I have. <laughs> uh, best writer, guess who? Uh, Peter Harness. Jim, get off the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> You give me a reputation, yeah. Stephen Moffat with fifty four percent. Yeah, well, for once, uh, I would agree with that. Mm. I mean, I don't. I yeah, not them slagging him off, but you know, off, and perhaps he was in series five. But there was a stage where I've, I found his episodes to be the one I like, uh, ones I like least. But mm. on this occasion, I think he was top notch. Fifty four percent, perhaps wow. the season before as well, series eight. So yeah, well deserved, I think. Yeah. Toby Whitehouse the uh, second with sixteen, mm, got a drop. Peter Harness third with fourteen, others sixteen. So it's a, yeah, it's a massive. The biggest one though is the director. Now Rachel Talale, 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 who I slagged off <laughs> beyond all belief in the series eight finale. I was like, what's she doing? Blah 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 blah. Anyway, with sixty one percent of the votes. Yeah. Underneath her is Hetty McDonald, so two lady directors mm. with 10%. She's got 61 hat, he's got 10. Absolutely deserves this. Yeah, her direction in Heaven Sent was amazing. It was, yeah. Absolutely superb. And I was like going, if she doesn't if she doesn't correct sorry, I'm doing an impression of you again, Jim. <laughs> if she doesn't if she doesn't correct herself, blah blah blah. You know, she's got to do something great because that finale was crap last time and she did. Yeah. Absolutely blew it out of the water. She was a, she's a brilliant director. So, Rachel, mm. la la mm. Yeah, you're awesome. Yeah, well done. you've answered your most northern critic. Yeah, your most harsh and northern critic. Well, there you go. But Heaven Sense get a big up, man. It's got it's got the musical score. It's won that as well by mm. a, a load mm. as well, which was which is lovely. And uh, favourite set design? Of course it is. Close, but, um, I mean, the castle heaven sent is tremendous. It is, But yeah. um, slightly edging that is the uh, the old-style TARDIS from Hellbent. The, which old, was the old roundels. Brought a tear and uh, a plumpened trouser to many a uh, <laughs> classic Who fan. Wow, Jim. Wow. Mm. Have you just turned into Craig off Prog to Who for a second there? <laughs> he was the only one sticking up for me, I noticed. He was, bless him, yeah, he was. Thank you, Craig. I did try, Jim, but Mark's so domineering. <laughs> um, so, favourite monster, and rightly so, the Zygons. They looked brilliant. Not quite as good as originals, I don't think, but they do look very good. 
but they're very they're kind of true to the originals, though, aren't they? That's what I think I love about well, them. Well, the they're most. a bit more dry and rubbery. I like the kind of slimy look of the original ones and the weird faces. Sounds, literally, sounds really wrong. Yeah, I don't a take bit more this dry up. than the other ones. <laughs> don't take it out. I of like, like him slippery, and <laughs> rubbery. Wow, here we go again. Hi, Craig. Um, <laughs> favorite effects? We'll finish with a eh? mm. the ghosts. They were good. Yeah, they were good. Mine would have been Colony Snaff. Uh, Snaff. <laughs> he was off Thundercats, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> uh, Colony Snaff. He was awesome. He was my favourite by Country Mouth. That was Ace Colony Snaff. I love it when his uh, snaky face unravelled. That was amazing. Oh, it was class. Proper, proper effects in that, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting one. Definitely, heaven sense kicked the arse out of it, hadn't it, really? Yeah, and I, in my opinion, rightly so. I mean, that was that mm. was a standout for me, and it's an instant classic. And um, yeah, I hope we see something of the same sort of quality in Stephen Moffat's sign-off season. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Lovely stuff. Good. Do you think that's us for this month? I think it is, Jim. Mm-hmm. Well, a pleasure as always, <laughs> Mister Robert. Indeedy, sir. Indeedy, doody. And uh, doodle, doodle, do, doodle, yeah, day. yeah. Pleasure, Jim. Uh, Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll be back again in October, so we'll talk to you then. Hell yeah. Bye-bye now. Bye. Well, here we are at the end of the ninth Doctor Who show. The year has gone so quick since we were starting off back in episode number one, hasn't it? My thanks to David, to Ian, to Jim, and to Bob... And what? What's that? The TARDIS library? <gasps> In a shock castrovalva like move, I've jettisoned it. No, just kidding. I've actually decided this, this month to spin the TARDIS library off into its own show of sorts. Uh, reasons for this are primarily, I realise that people might like to listen to a podcast, I certainly do at least, on a a long commute or maybe two short commutes on the same day and for that reason I think podcasts that are between about an hour and an hour and a half are quite good and with our show and indeed past episodes of um, Who Wars going for two hours, two and a half hours, I know we've gone over three hours before on the old show anyway, it's, it's maybe not practical for people out there. So I want to experiment with keeping the chatty part of the show. That's what I'll call this, where I chat with David and Jim chats with Bob and we have Ian in the middle. The chatty part of the show. Try and keep it to an hour, hour and a half, and then I'll um, spin off the TARDIS library to be its own thing, however long that might be, month to month. This month it will be particularly long. Um, I know I've got three pieces in it myself, and there's submissions from Matt and, and Lex and Kevin uh, too. So... Let's see how it goes this month. Let's see how many people listen to one or the other. And it might become a thing ongoing that we have two shows every month. Um, More for your money. Well, what money? Um, (laughs) Anyway, I'm rambling at this point. That's a brief explanation as to why the TARDIS Library will now be its own show. Um, I welcome feedback on this or anything we've discussed, David and I, or anything Bob and Jim discussed, or Ian's fantastic A to Z. Give him some love, people. Jump on Twitter and tell him he's great. Um, (laughs) You know what I mean. Our email address, as always, is hello at the dwshow.net, and we'd love to hear from you. Now, without any further ado, let me press play on the closing credits, and I'll join you in a moment 
in the TARDIS library. Just find it on our iTunes feed or on the website, thedwshow.net. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, or names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. So the AFL, we might be looking at a Sydney-Sydney grand final, uh, eh? If we are, that is what we in Melbourne call a non-canon grand final. Oh, that is funny. (laughs) And if if that happens, then I'll, despite being Victorian, I'll give up on the AFL and I'll just be barracking for the storm in the rugby next weekend. Wow, if they make it. Well, see if Greater Western Sydney makes it, but a (laughs) two-Sydney grand final, that's... That's just wrong. But hey, you still have to play it in Melbourne. That's true. That's true. Just like the NRL will be played in Sydney. <laughs> and, and that's the way it should be. Indeed. <laughs>